I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find thrilling original content spanning everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Every review helps the show. Thank you. In our last episode, when Lee arrived at the hospital, she found out that Holly wasn't the only victim of the senseless shooting, but she was its only survivor. However, her relief about her daughter's survival was overshadowed when she was informed that Holly might never walk again. And now, without further ado, the next episode of The Seal of Solomon by Charles and Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. stood quietly beside the bed, looking down at her child, realizing how small and defenseless she really was. She took her daughter's hand, held it, thanking God for sparing her life. She leaned down and kissed her on the cheek and whispered into her ear, Mommy's here, baby. Lee straightened up and looked over at the monitors that recorded in wavy lines and sharp jagged blips her daughter's life signs. She glanced at the IV bag. The rhythmic dripping of its solution held her attention. It was like the dripping from a faucet that needed repair in a quiet house late at night, but someone had turned off the sound. She physically couldn't hear it, only the semblance of its sound in her head. She grimaced, gently laid her daughter's hand back on the bed beside her, and softly lifted the hospital sheet that covered Holly's legs. She prepared herself for the possibility that they would feel cold and lifeless, a preconceived notion she mistakenly held about paralysis. Lee felt her daughter's legs as if this could somehow tell her whether she would walk again. They were warm to her touch all the way down except for her feet, which were cooler, but then Holly's feet had always tended to be cold anyway. Tears ran softly down her face as she lowered the sheet. She wasn't conscious of the fact that she was crying until one tear touched her lip and she tasted the saltiness of it. She opened her purse, took out a tissue, and dabbed at her eyes. Lee leaned down and softly kissed her daughter's forehead. Then she walked across the room to the large window. She leaned her head against the window frame and looked out into the dark, foreboding sky. In the distance, streaks of lightning illuminated the horizon for a brief instant, 
It looked like a white jagged tear in a black backdrop, and then it was gone. There was no sound of thunder, only the stillness. A few seconds later, the flash of lightning came again. Heat lightning, she thought, and found herself briefly smiling. She hadn't seen heat lightning since she was a child, and she remembered what her father had told her about it. The storm must be too far away to carry the sound of the thunder. With the next flash of lightning, she remembered her father's eyes when he found out that she was pregnant with Holly three months before high school graduation. He hadn't said anything at first, not a word. His lack of verbal response was like the thunder that didn't come. But the flash of anger had been there in his eyes like the heat lightning in a dark summer sky. And when his words came, when he did speak after his long silence, it was like a terrible storm that finally broke, a storm she had both feared and welcomed, because at last there was an end to his silence. His words came then like claps of thunder, filled with disappointment and bitterness at what she had done, sorrow for what she had given up, college, a chance for a better life. She found then, too late, that he had great expectations of her becoming a doctor or a lawyer or even an accountant and moving to Kansas City, Topeka, or even Wichita, as far away as she could get from the dirt-poor town of Oakwood, Oklahoma, where he and her mother had been stuck all of their lives. That was the first time she realized that her father hated ranching, that he had wanted to do something else that he hated what he had become and where he had ended up. In that instant, she understood that he had placed all his hopes and dreams on her. He had been prepared to make just about any sacrifice to realize his dreams through her. I have my own life to live. I can't be what you want me to be, she had said with tears in her eyes. She had seen the lightning flash again in his eyes as he had said, You marry that dumb kid John Atherton, and you'll never amount to anything because he's nothing. And you'll be stuck here, or someplace like it, just like I was. She had raged back at him. Are you sorry you were stuck with me? He had stiffened and turned away. The storm had ended there, but things were never the same between them. They had lived with her parents and John's parents off and on for five years, until they saved enough money to leave Oakwood. One thing she knew after the argument with her father, she never wanted to be stuck in Oakwood, but she realized now that she was stuck here instead. Camden Street wasn't Oakwood, but it was just as desolate, and she felt just as trapped. She hadn't settled for Oakwood, and she wouldn't settle for Camden Street. John had been killed trying to help the three of them escape the neighborhood they'd lived in for five years, and there were still questions surrounding his death. Now some drug dealer had tried to kill her daughter. She made up her mind that no matter what it took, she was going to get Holly and herself off Camden Street and out of this God-forsaken city. A raspy whisper broke her train of thought. Mommy? She turned quickly and saw Holly staring at her from her hospital bed. She crossed the room. You're awake. A faint smile quickly appeared and then was gone, replaced by a grimace of pain. My back hurts, she replied in the same raspy, cracking voice. Lee pressed the bedside button for the nurse and leaned over Holly and kissed her again. 
The nurse will be here soon. We'll see if she can give you something to help ease the pain, sweetheart. A few moments later, a nurse in her fifties entered the room. She was cheerful and very animated. Ah, you're awake. We thought you were going to sleep for another three days. How are you feeling? She says her back hurts, Lee replied before Holly could answer. Could you give her something for the pain? I'll notify the doctor and he'll be in to see her. He'll probably order something for the pain then. She carefully raised Holly's head, repositioned the pillows, and checked the IV drip in the monitors. Would you like a sip of ice water, Holly? Yes, please, Holly whispered. I'll be right back, hon. A few minutes later, she returned with a plastic pitcher full of ice water and poured a blue plastic cup full of the cold liquid. Cup in one hand, with the other hand she pressed the button to elevate the head of the bed. She held the cup for Holly as the little girl took a few tentative sips. A doctor came in just as she finished. Lee noticed that his white lab coat stood out in contrast to his tanned skin and dark brown hair. He was tall, over six feet, she judged, and what some women might call ruggedly handsome. The nurse nodded and flashed a bright smile at him as she left the room. He nodded and smiled back at her politely, and then walked over to where Lee was standing and offered her his outstretched hand. She took it. His hand was strong and firm, but his touch was gentle. Hi, I'm Dr. Rawlings, Holly's surgeon. Mrs. Atherton? Though he spoke softly, his voice was very masculine, and it had a deep resonance to it. Yes, she replied. He turned toward Holly and said, So how are you doing, Sleeping Beauty? He said it with a quick smile. Holly smiled weakly back. Okay, I guess, but my back hurts. Well, we'll just see what we can do about that, he said with enthusiasm, despite the signs of fatigue that were apparent in his dark brown eyes. He had a pleasant smile and a congenial bedside manner. The positive, upbeat manner he displayed was, no doubt, to help relieve the patient's anxiety and to ease the concern of whatever relative was present at the time. Lee couldn't help thinking that it was some kind of act that he turned on when he entered the hospital room and turned off as soon as he slipped back out into the hall. It struck her that with such a convincing talent, he could probably make a splash as an actor on stage somewhere. Nonetheless, there was a certain sincerity to his animated show of concern, and Lee decided that, given the long hours and the number of patients he must have to care for, such a positive demeanor was admirable at five in the morning. He picked up Holly's chart from the foot of the bed and leafed through it, pausing on one page to read some notes. He scribbled something down and said, I'm ordering some medication to ease your pain, Holly. I'd like to speak with you about my daughter's condition if I could, Dr. Rawlings. He nodded and they walked to the window. Lee noticed that the doctor had become low-key. This time when he spoke, it was in a soft whisper. Your daughter experienced a potential life-threatening trauma, Mrs. Atherton. There was more damage than we initially thought. The impact of the bullet shattered a vertebra. The bullet fragmented and we took pieces out of the large intestine, the kidney, and the liver. Most of the damage centered on the vertebra and the large intestine. Right now, it's touch and go. We want to make sure there's no leakage around the sutures in the intestine. If there is, we'll have to go back in and repair it. I know Dr. Hudson spoke with you about the possibility of paralysis because of the injury to the spinal column. 
Actually, he didn't. He just said we'd have to wait and see what happens when the swelling goes down. He was right. We're just going to have to adopt a wait-and-see attitude about any possible paralysis. We'll have to schedule CAT scans once the swelling has subsided. Lee dismissed his explanation and pressed for an answer. Will she be able to walk? He paused for a moment before he spoke. I think it's a little too early for me to answer that question. Give her body some time to heal. Lee searched his handsome face for some sign that he knew more than he was telling her, but either he was telling her the truth or he was very good at hiding what he really thought. He changed the subject suddenly. How long have you been here, Mrs. Atherton? Since yesterday afternoon. What I'm going to give Holly to ease the pain will also make her sleep. That's what I want her to do right now, sleep. It'll help the healing process. Why don't you go home once she drifts off and get some rest yourself? You look like you could use it. Lee glanced over her shoulder at Holly and then turned back to Dr. Rawlings. She'll be in good hands, he said. I can assure you of that. You're no good to her like this. Lee looked into his dark brown eyes, forced a smile, and said, Like what? Bleary-eyed, drawn face, hair uncombed, the total disheveled look? He dropped his eyes for a moment, and then he looked directly into hers and said with a quick grin, Not at all. You look marvelous. His light-hearted response took her by surprise. He tilted his head slightly, his brown eyes staring into hers. She hesitated for only a moment and then smiled more easily and said, I will, once she drifts off to sleep. Just before Dr. Rawlings left the room, he told Holly he would see her a little later that evening. A few minutes later, the nurse came back with a small vial and a syringe. She punctured the vial, filled the syringe, and then inserted it into the juncture of the IV between the bag and the tube. Within a short time, the liquid traveled down the clear tube that ran directly into Holly's arm. Lee talked to Holly for a little while and smoothed her hair back away from her forehead. She didn't know what would happen tomorrow, but right now it just felt good seeing Holly awake. Lee held her little girl's hand. Moments later, the child's eyes grew heavy. She tried to say something, but she drifted off to sleep. Lee leaned down and kissed her and whispered in her ear, I'll be here when you wake up. Don't worry, baby. Lee let herself into her apartment, closed the door behind her, slid the security bar into place, and released the second lock. She glanced into the kitchen. The intensity of the heat in the apartment was the same as the day before, when the police had arrived at her door to tell her about Holly. She went from room to room, mechanically opening the windows, checking the bars to make sure they were secure, and turning on the fans. Satisfied that everything was secure, she began to walk down the hall to Holly's room. She stopped halfway and listened. It was the first time she realized how quiet and empty the apartment was without Holly. As she listened, a shiver went through her, a feeling of foreboding. By the time she reached the door to Holly's room, tears were rolling down her face. She walked into the small bedroom, sat down on the child's bed, picked up her pillow, and held it to her face. She smelled the scent of shampoo from Holly's freshly washed hair on it. She rubbed her face against the pillow, inhaling the scent. My God, I almost lost her, she said softly. Tears began running down her face uncontrollably. 
there was a knot in the pit of her stomach as she curled up on her daughter's bed. She tried to stop crying, but she couldn't. She'd already lost John because some maniac was given a license to drive and chose to use his car as a weapon, and now she realized that she had almost lost Holly, too. Feelings flooded over her, feelings she hadn't wanted to experience ever again. Deep sobs shook her body as loneliness, despair, emptiness washed over her. There was a knowledge that she had found when she had lost John, that knowledge that she would never see the person she loved again. Knowing that all she had left were pictures and the memories, both good and bad. The good ones you kept, the bad ones you tried to resolve. Could anyone really resolve them? She didn't know. She hoped that maybe time would help her come to some type of understanding. She remembered what her mother had said, but it didn't feel true. It didn't feel possible that time would heal all wounds. There hadn't been enough time for her to recover from John's death. That wound was still open and raw, and now to think that she could have lost Holly too. She could see now that a life could be extinguished in an instant, snuffed out by some maniac with a gun or a car. For those left behind, the loss would last a lifetime. Somehow, Holly had been given a reprieve. She had survived while others had died. All that mattered was that she was alive. Lee pushed the possibility of Holly being paralyzed out of her mind. She didn't want to think about that. She took some comfort in what Dr. Rawlings had said, that it was better to take a wait-and-see stance, give Holly's body time to heal. That was the last thought she had, before she drifted off into a deep, disturbing, but much-needed sleep. And now, a preview of our next episode. Faced with Holly's mounting medical bills, and without enough insurance to cover them, what will Lee do to ensure that her daughter receives the care she really needs? Join our Patreon site and become a Dreadnought. For only $3 a month, you'll receive early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic content such as ghost notes and commentaries by the writers of Serial Dreadful's original series, exclusive access to Season 2 of each series as those episodes are released, as well as access to the entire back catalog of all episodes in our various series as our podcast goes forward. All this for less than a cup of coffee from you-know-who. Face it, folks. You're not going to get a better deal for original content anywhere. So go ahead and click the link in the show description now to become a Dreadnought and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.